0: Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 22, Codename Disinfection. Welcome back. We last left off with the attempts by the French and British to break the deadlock in early 1915. Joseph Joff's offensives in the Champagne region turned into an attritional grind as both French and German armies exchanged thousands of casualties for only minimal gain while the British and Indian effort at Neuve-Chapelle had shown the Allies that a rapid infantry advance following a sustained artillery bombardment could be used to punch a hole in the German lines. While Haig's efforts helped redeem the British army in the eyes of the French, the legacy of Neuve-Chapelle would become overshadowed when the shell scandal erupted a few months later, leading to massive implications not just for Britain, but for the war itself. Now as I said at the end of last week, we were going to stay on the Western Front, and look at what the German strategy was heading into 1915. The Germans, you see, found themselves in a very difficult situation. On the one hand, he had Erich von Falkenhayn arguing that victory could still be won in the West, while on the other, the two-headed monster of Paul von Hindenburg and Erich von Ludendorff believed that assisting the Austro-Hungarians in defeating the Russians was a far better play. After a carousel of meetings with Wilhelm and Chancellor Betham-Holwig, the decision was made to focus on the Eastern Front for 1915, and as a result, it fell to Falkenhayn to transfer eight divisions from the West in support of the Eastern action. This allowed Falkenheim the opportunity to test a new weapon, which promised to add a whole new dimension of horror on the Western Front. On April 22nd, the Germans would unleash chemical warfare on a mass scale, in the form of chlorine gas at the Ypres salient, drawing international condemnation and fierce protests within Germany itself. The use of poison gas is one of the war's most enduring images, so I want to spend a good chunk of this week talking about the factors leading to its deployment. It was not an easy decision for the Germans by any stretch but one, which put in its appropriate context, offers us a chance to better understand the war's changing nature. But before we begin, I would like to give a shout out to listener Joe, who, picking up on my lack of trench diagram from last week, provided a link which contains an excellent drawing of a trench network, along with numerous maps and diagrams highlighting key developments throughout the war. I have posted Joe's link under this episode, and for those of you who want to avoid spoilers, you can find the trench diagram by scrolling down to number 26. It has everything we talked about last day, so if you wanted a visual representation to supplement my oral ramblings, you could thank Joe for bringing it to our attention. So I thought a fun way to ease us into this week's discussion is to bring up an article I stumbled across a few weeks back. The article, featured in the New Year's Eve edition of The Guardian, was about our old friend Otto von Bismarck. And the author, Michael White, argued that Bismarck deserves a share of the blame in causing the First World War because it was his system of alliances which helped put Europe on the path to 1914. Now we've already discussed how I don't agree with the alliances led to war argument, and to say that Bismarck should be held accountable for events 16 years after his death is a little far out to left field for me. Not to mention, Bismarck had resigned from office in 1890, so connecting him to events in 1914 is a stretch even at the best of times. The reason I bring this up, I mean besides the fact that I found it funny, Is that if you will recall, Bismarck's three central tenets to foreign policy were A. Keep Russia friendly, which he had done with the Three Emperors League, B. Keep Britain happy, which he had done by not challenging overseas possessions, and C. Keep the French isolated, which he had done by accomplishing both A and B together. So if we keep this in mind and look at what Germany was facing in 1915, I'm pretty sure old Bismarck would have looked better after getting smacked in the face with an anvil. Locked in a stalemate in the West against France and Britain, and fighting a better-prepared Russia in the East, was the very two-front war Bismarck had worked tirelessly to avoid. Remember, woe unto my poor grandchildren? To make matters worse, the Austro-Hungarians had been bloodied in Serbia, and just barely escaped annihilation in Glacia, and looked increasingly like they could not survive without German support. The Austrians, too, don't forget, had been occupied in the Carpathians since December, when the Russians launched a mountain offensive following their victory in Glacia. And if that was not bad enough there were rumblings coming out of Italy, that the Italians had almost reached a deal which would bring them on the side of the Entente. So for the Germans, the Ring of Steel was closing ever tighter, hardly the situation Bismarck had planned for. But getting back to the situation at hand, what made Erich von Falkenhayn an appropriate successor to Moltke was his cautious approach to war-making, an unshakable belief that the war could still be won despite the failure of the Schlieffen Plan. He believed that a knockout blow aimed against the French was the most efficient way to achieve this, Falkenhayn saw the French as the linchpin to the Entente war effort, and British and Russian involvement was conditional only. You see, France stood to lose the most. The presence of the German army on their soil was an intrusion which had to be reversed. But if Germany were to defeat them, would Britain and Russia be willing to continue alone? In Falkenhayn's calculation, this was highly unlikely. Russia had only begun mobilization after French assurances, and as we talked about in previous episodes, Britain continued to drag its feet until the Belgian invasion. So to Falkenhayn, it was simple. Remove the French ringleader, and the entire show grinds to a halt. Unfortunately for him, things were not that simple, because he was not the only one trying to win the war, after all. On the Eastern Front, Paul von Hindenburg and Erich von Ludendorff had achieved star-like status. Ever since defeating Samsonov's First Army at Tannenberg and driving the Russians from East Prussia, Hindenburg and Ludendorff had become folk heroes to the German public, and this should come as no surprise. To many Germans at this stage, the Western Front remained some faraway thing, where events did not threaten the security of Germany. Yet, the much-feared Russians had invaded their home turf in frightening numbers, and having scored two major victories despite being vastly outnumbered, had given the two generals nearly unmatched popular support. But while Falkenhayn wanted to attack in the West, Hindenburg and Ludendorff saw the East as the best chance for victory. Ludendorff, with the support of Konrad von Hutzendorff, argued that the fight had to be taken to the Russians. Tsar's forces were already fighting in four separate theatres, Poland, Glacia, the Carpathians, and since December had been clashing with the Turks in the South Caucasus. So to the eastern commanders, a massive spearhead into Glacia and Poland would drive the Russians back and force them into suing for peace. Ludendorff was not that far off in his prediction either. Despite fielding a much larger force than what was expected, the Russians were exhausted, freezing, and short on munitions. As early as December 1914, the Stavka chief of staff, Nikolai Yanuchkovich, painted a grim picture of the Russian army condition. Quote, In regiments which have lost their officers, mass surrenders to the enemy have been developing, sometimes on the initiative of wartime officers. Why should we die from hunger and exposure without boots, they ask. The artillery keeps silent and we are shot down like partridges. One is better off in Germany. End quote. As I already hinted, the West-East debate proved to be a sticky issue for Wilhelm, to whom it fell to keep both Western and Eastern commanders happy. Falkenhayn he had appointed personally, so going against his wishes would seem quite counterintuitive. Why give him the job if you're not going to listen to what he says? Hmm, a good point. But at the same time, the people were behind hindenburg Ludendorff, and public opinion means a lot these days, so you can't just go against popular support, remember? The split in command became a white hot, as Ludendorff and Falkenhayn reportedly called for the others' resignation. Falkenhayn argued that an Eastern approach would be a waste of time, and that a major effort in the West had to begin immediately before more French and British forces could be called up. While Eastern command believed that the Russians were almost done, so you might as well take care of them now, free up the troops, and then head west. Kind of like a reverse version of the Schlieffen Plan. But there were two things which tipped the Kaiser's hand aside with Ludendorff. One, he could not go against public opinion in the prestige of his Eastern generals, and two, although the Germans would never admit to it, was to appease the Austrians. Germany did not have to play the diplomacy game on the Western Front, but in the East, the Austrians did have to be buddied up to, regardless of how strained the relationship had become. Plus, if you consider Falkenhayn's distaste for the Austrians, especially Hutzendorf, the Kaiser could not side with him without the risk of alienating Vienna. So in early January, Wilhelm struck a compromise. For 1915, German efforts would be concentrated against Russia, but Falkenhayn would be in charge of the major operations designed to liberate Glacier in Russian Poland. This action was scheduled to begin in May, and at Hutzendorf's insistence, eight divisions from the west would need to be redeployed to support the now fragile Austrian army. Of course, getting these divisions, some 120,000 men from west to east without the Allies catching wind, was not going to be easy. He would need to find a way to keep the French and British occupied while he organized the logistics. So between January 14th and 25th, Falkenhayn met with his advisors and senior commanders from the Western Front to determine which area would be best suited to stage this diversion. The Duke of Württemberg, who commanded the 4th Army at the Ypres salient, recommended that his sector was the ideal place, as an attack there was exactly what the Allies expected and thus would not give off an impression that something was amiss. Falkenhayn dutifully agreed and it was concluded that Ypres was the best possible location. But before the meetings adjourned, the Duke had also agreed to something else. Falkenhayn had informed him that command was eager to test out a new form of chemical weapon, with the hope that it could be used to break the deadlock once the Russians had been eliminated. This new chemical weapon was chlorine gas, which not only horrified the Germans, but would drag the war to a new level of inhumanity. The first thing I want to point out is that the decision to use chemical weapons was incredibly controversial within the German leadership. Although Falkenhayn comes across as their ringleader, he had grave doubts about its effectiveness, and many generals like Karl von Einem, commander of the 3rd Army in Champagne, were appalled at the idea. In a letter to his wife after the testing at Ypres, Einem expressed his regret that the once proud German army had stooped to such lows. Quote, "...I fear it will produce a tremendous scandal in the world. War has nothing to do with chivalry anymore." The higher civilization rises, the viler man becomes. But whatever moral or chivalrous boundary was being crossed, Falkenhayn was desperate. Like Joseph Joff and Sir John French, he too was facing immense pressure to end the deadlock. And prior to the Kaiser's decision to focus on the East, Falkenhayn had ordered that experiments be carried out to test the most effective gases and delivery methods. What I found most intriguing when researching this is that despite popular memory, the use of chemical weapons did not begin at Ypres in 1915. There is evidence that both the French and Germans had used irritant gases as early as 1914, but with little effect. While the French case is still up for some debate among historians, it is fairly clear that the Germans had used tear gas against the Russians during their campaign in the Polish salient. But due to the sub-zero temperatures, the gas had frozen before the Russians had any idea it had been used. This is important because if historians arrive at conclusive evidence regarding the French case, it would mean that there was already a precedent for the Germans to experiment with more lethal forms which of course would challenge a common belief that the Germans had used poison gas without provocation, and as you can probably tell, I just can't help myself when it comes to challenging these popular myths. It was not until Fritz Haber, then Germany's leading chemist, who suggested that pumping vaporized chlorine into an enemy trench was the most effective and cheapest mode of delivery. Haber had noted that previous attempts to deliver gas in specially designed artillery shells, known as T-shells, was a waste of valuable resources, since Germany was facing a shell shortage of her own. Haber's solution was to use liquid chlorine, lethal in heavy doses, in which, when exposed to air, cools into a cloud and drifts along with the breeze. More crucially was that in vapor form, chlorine is heavier than air, meaning that it would stay on ground level and be able to sink into crevices and in enemy trenches, covering everything in a blanket of mist. To add to this already horrific picture, once inhaled, the gas would sit in a person's lungs like a wet towel, essentially causing the victim to asphyxiate from the inside. Haber further concluded that the best way to transport this weapon to the battlefield was in special steel canisters, codenamed F-batteries, and connect them to a two-blind dug underground facing downwind from the German trenches, which had begun to be put in place beginning on April 2nd. With a solution in place, Falkenhayn only needed to justify its usage. The problem was that Germany had signed both the 1899 and 1907 Hague Peace Agreements, which strictly forbade the use of chemical weapons and toxins. However, German command found a loophole in the terms, which called for banning of, quote, "...the employment of poison or poison weaponry, arms, or make use of projectiles, the sole object of which is the diffusion of asphyxiating or deleterious gases," end quote. Now, from my point of view, that seems to cover all the bases, but Falkenhayn decided to take these statements in the most literal sense. In regards to poison or poison weaponry, he took that clause to apply it only to the deliberate poisoning of food and water, and weaponry to mean the actual act of shooting poisoned bullets or using poisoned bayonets. And for the use of projectiles, well, they were not using projectiles to deliver the gas, now were they? They were releasing it through canisters and leaving nature to take care of the rest, and surely there was no rule stipulating against that. This for sure was a slippery trick by Falkenhayn, yet it was one which the Germans would defend throughout the war, especially when the Allies began to counter with poison gases of their own. So, in this context, the first use of chlorine gas came with a number of reasons. Falkenhayn wanted to test its effectiveness before committing it to the east, but also to give the appearance of a major offensive in the west in order to throw the Entente off their guard. As far as Haber, Falkenhayn, and the Duke of Wurttemberg knew, this whole thing could end up in an embarrassing debacle. A slight change in the breeze could blow the chlorine vapors back into the German trenches and cause their own troops to asphyxiate, which not only would have been curtains for the whole operation but would have given away the element of surprise without inflicting a single allied casualty. So this step was not taken lightly or with any childish enthusiasm. As we already mentioned, ground zero for codenamed Disinfection, the combat deployment of chlorine gas, was set for the battle-scarred landscape of the Ypres salient. Throughout the winter of 1915, little had changed at Ypres since we last left it in episode 16, and it remained a non-proverbial hell on earth. When Falkenhayn failed to achieve a breakthrough the previous fall, the area which was once the heart of Belgian wool making was now one of the most disturbing places on the western front. The entrenched German lines surrounding the salient had decimated the town itself and left the area dotted with shell craters and thousands of uncollected rotting corpses. By the spring, the seasonal thaw and rising water level had turned it into a muddy quagmire as artillery bombardments continued to turn up the earth and flood the Allied trenches, not exactly a honeymoon destination. But to the Belgian's French and British position there, Ypres had come to have special significance. It remained the only major Belgian town outside of German occupation, and thus became the very symbol of Belgium's resistance. Throughout the winter, more men had been poured into the Allied lines at Ypres than any other area along the front, transforming it into an international village. Canadians, Indians, Senegalese, Moroccan, and Algerian troops now occupied the 30 kilometer front. But despite Falkenhayn's efforts, the Allies were not completely in the dark of what the Germans were up to. On April the 14th, a German deserter had been picked up by the French, and under interrogation, had let it slip that a special type of gas was to be released in the coming days. To back up his claim, the soldier had on him a large cloth pad, which could be tightened around the back of his head, suggesting he was expected to work and be able to hold a rifle, if indeed gas was present. This information was promptly set up the chain of command, but it was dismissed as nonsense. In his book, Magnificent But Not War, John Dixon points out that both the French and British believed that this deserter, who was a mere private, knew a little too much about the situation, and concluded that he had to be a decoy, sent to cause unrest in the Allied ranks. Plus, as Dixon argues, aerial photography of the German lines had not picked up anything suspicious, and that for pre-1915 soldiers, the threat of gas did not carry the same weight as it does today since at the time there was very little precedent for them to base it on. After all, toxic weapons had been banned at the Hague, remember? So as the days went by with no action from the German lines, most cited that it was all panic and no substance. April the 22nd, 1915 began as a warm and sunny day. Men in the Allied trenches were busy conducting their daily mundane tasks or using their respite to catch some needed rest. At approximately 4pm, the Germans unleashed an artillery barrage which sent men scurrying underground. As the cannonade lifted, Allied troops took up positions expecting to see German silhouettes on the horizon, but instead saw something which no amount of bullets could stop. A yellowish-green cloud, some six kilometers wide and half a kilometer deep, was creeping across no man's land, making a soft hissing sound as the chlorine cooled in the air. The gas fell on the French, Algerian, and Moroccan troops first, who were totally defenseless. Those who fled their trenches to avoid inevitable asphyxiation were cut down by machine gun fire, and within 10 minutes of the attack, nearly 6,000 were dead, blinded, or incapacitated. The Germans would pump nearly 168 tons of chlorine gas on April 22nd alone, with macabre results. A British eyewitness recalls the carnage, quote, Hundreds, after a dreadful fight for air, became unconscious and died where they lay, a death of hideous torture. With the frothing bubbles gurgling in their throats and the foul liquid welling up their lungs, with blackened faces and twisted limbs, one by one they drowned. Only that which drowned them came from inside and not from out." With the Algerians and Moroccans incapacitated, a 6 kilometer gap opened in the line. The Germans had not expected this, but a combination of surprise and fear of being asphyxiated by their own gas meant they were slow to capitalise. The British commander in the region, General Horace Smith-Dorian, redeployed the British and Canadian divisions to plug the gap. On April the 24th, a second gas attack was directed against the Canadians near Saint-Julien. Now as you probably know, I myself am a Canadian. And as much as it pains me to say this, despite whatever popular myth we cling to so dearly, Canadians were not the first to encounter poison gas in World War 1. I. I do not know where this myth comes from, but I hear it all the time and I am sure that once April 2015 rolls around, We'll have all sorts of patriotic stories about how Canadians bear the brunt of the earliest chemical attack. But for the sake of historical accuracy, we should note that almost immediately after the Algerians and Moroccans were nearly massacred, the British quickly identified the gas as chlorine based, which means someone who paid attention in chemistry class remembered that chlorine is water soluble, so word soon spread among the British and Canadian troops that soaking a cloth in either water or urine because of its high ammonia content could be used as a rudimentary gas mask. Historians have commonly labeled this battle Second Yeap, which continued from April 22nd to May the 25th, and despite fierce resistance, the Germans were able to capture all the high ground in the salient, the most significant being Passchendaele Ridge. But this was in part helped by the Allies who executed several tactical retreats, notably at Langemark and Saint-Julien, the site of the April 24th gas attack, which saw 3,058 Canadian casualties in a single day. Yet the town itself remained in Allied hands. If you look at the map I've uploaded to the Great com, you can see just how much ground the Allies had given up to secure the line elsewhere. Perhaps the cruelest aspect of Second Yeap was that it was the only major effort the Germans made on the Western Front in 1915, and was purely for the sake of diversion. With the chaos of the fighting, Falkenhayn had managed to get his 8 divisions away without being detected, and until 1916, would leave the Western Front garrison with just enough manpower to keep the Allies at bay. For its part, Chlorine gas was only a partial success. The element of surprise had given the Germans an opportunity to break into the salient, but the fear of being caught in their own clouds had hampered any potential gains. At a cost of 59,000 British, including Canadians and Indians, and 10,000 French, Algerian, and Moroccan troops, the Germans sustained 35,000, some of them while manually releasing the gas that first afternoon. Although the use of poison gas remains controversial to this day, it was immediately after its appearance that saw the most protest. General von Daimling, who commanded a corps under the Fourth Army of Ypres, compared it to gassing men like rats, and Fritz Haber's wife, Clara Immerwar, herself an accomplished chemist, committed suicide on May the 2nd in protest of her husband's work. The role of poison gas is synonymous with the struggle of the Western Front. It will never become the weapon which would break the deadlock, yet its legacy lays in the terror it invoked for the men on both sides. By July, Allied soldiers will be equipped with proper masks and other anti-gas equipment which meant it would never be the decisive weapon the Germans envisioned. Yet that did not stop both armies from using it with frightening regularity. The British would counter with a gas attack of their own in late September, at the Battle of Loos, and again, gas would prove to be just as dangerous to the attackers as it did to the defenders. Like the bombing of civilians in World War II, poison gas in the Great War became a terror weapon, designed to break the fighting spirit of an army. But as was the nature of the Western Front, whatever tactics were employed, the opposing army quickly found ways to counter, which is one of the reasons why the deadlock became so difficult to crack. But the Germans weren't the only ones to focus their efforts away from the Western Front. To help relieve the strain on their besieged Russian allies, the British and French began to look elsewhere. In London, Winston Churchill's calls for an assault on the Dardanelles had begun to pick up steam. Beginning in February, Royal Navy ships had already begun bombarding the fortresses which lined the Gallipoli Peninsula in the hopes that the Ottomans would be forced to commit resources in defense of Constantinople. Next week, we'll look at the Gallipoli operation in more detail, what the plan was, why it was done, but most importantly, why it was a total failure. In short, it was highly ambitious, but proved that the learning curve in the first total war was much steeper than expected. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podman.com. There you can find Twitter and email information if you wish to get in touch with me, Comments and feedback are always more than welcome. If you are interested in helping out the Great War Podcast, give us a search on iTunes and leave a five-star review, as that will help keep the show up in the rankings and encourage me to keep pumping out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.